Hi, and welcome to yet another episode of the State Advertising Marketing Podcast. This is your host, Ankur, and I have today with me Harsh, who leads the entire uh, D2C effort for a brand called Dimensh. A lot of you would have already heard of it. It's a new sensation in the world of men's fashion, comfort wear, as the word they like to use it. It's been a five-year-old brand, already crossed 100,000 revenue, been a very, very interesting journey. A uh, lot of D2C effort, now getting into offline. Thank you so much for joining us, Harsh, today. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So maybe we'll uh, touch base with Harsh a little bit on his journey on uh, what his life at Decathlon looked like. I heard some very interesting nuggets of uh, insights on how that experience made him a better retention marketer. So maybe let's start with that, Harsh. You know, what was your journey like? Sure. Uh, kind of will take you 10 years back because that's when I joined Decathlon. It was two stores in India. Third store had just opened up and we were still, we just moved from the B2B piece uh, to the B2C piece, even in the stores. No e-commerce presence. So digital was still being spoken about everywhere, but not everybody was using it. And I remember my first day and I was asked that, hey, you know what, you'll have to work two, three months in the store. You'll have to understand what things, what kind of things go on in the store. You'll have to sell product. You'll be assigned a particular family. And this is the kind of family you'll have to look off. And unfortunately, um, my family was kids' shoes. And it was hellish towards the end of the day because pair would be here, a pair would be somewhere else and you have to find, get the store ready for the next day to start. And that was a very interesting experience because I think almost two months, three months in the store, I interacted with what, almost 1,000, 2,000 customers. So you really understand what they think about the brand, how they perceive, how important sport in their life. So a lot of good insights came into um, mm. me as a marketer or me who was joining the company as a CRM project manager. That was the designation that I had then. And then I had to also work in the warehouse for a couple of weeks, understand how things work there. There'll be truckloads of products that will come in and we will have to pull the products out of the truck, place it in the store. It was a wonderful experience, wonderful experience. And I think that is what shaped my career thereafter because it made me humble. It made me realize that when you work in an industry like this, you need to be customer first. Um, customer centricity should be part of your DNA, if not entirely the way you think. And these are the things that eventually helped me push where I wanted to go. Uh, things just panned out nicely because I joined a company which was very, very serious about customer first. Sure. And, and that's where it took off, uh, where I started my retention marketing career. Um, planning how the data should be structured so that I can do it better and, and things like that. And then things fell in place. I kept from one role to another and a few learnings along the way. So let's just zoom into the whole customer centricity side of things and your experience at the store and the warehouse, translating that into things that you did on the consumer engagement slash retention framework. You did mention a bit about Decathlon choosing a set of customers that they thought would be valuable for them versus the others who might not be. How did that whole... Uh, learning translate into actionables. Right. So I would not say that it's about choosing that these are valuable, these are not valuable, but it's because as an experience point of view, every decathlon store that you go to, the experience would be the same. It's just the way people who work in the stores are so passionate about sport, so passionate about uh, making the pleasure and benefit of sport accessible to all. And that's the motto that we run behind when we were at decathlon. And, uh, what happens then is, as a business, you look at a set of customers who you know the CLTVs will be very high. Sure. Primarily, the more you play, the more you buy. So anybody who's actively partaking in any kind of uh, sport activity, be it professional, recreational, just for fitness, just for well-being, would be the individuals that definitely will become those 20% of customers that will give you that 80% kind of revenue. Sure. But that doesn't mean that other customers would not be looked at or considered important. They would probably say from, if I had to talk from a retention point of view, these 20% of customers would receive a lot more personalized communication, a lot more personalized interactions with the people in the store because it just, we know that if these people are treated well, these people are the real, sorry to use the word, but cash cows. Sure. But uh, uh, but the other 80% from an experience point of view will also not be differentiated. But if there are any blanket campaigns that need to go out, mm. it typically would not go to these 20% of customers. It sure. will mostly be around these 80% because we still don't know. Do they practice? What do they like? What their preferences are? 
And as that pool keeps growing, people will keep moving into these uh, 20% of customers and then things will start getting a bit more personalized there. If I answered your question. Sure, fair. So Decathlon being the a fairly large comprehensive global organization in terms of the mental model on uh, understanding the customer lifetime value also seems to be kind of pre-existent when they're starting this business sure. uh, in India sure. in that sense, right? So the choices being made are a reflection of that itself. So as a CRM project manager, what was the set of charters that you chased and how did that play out? Right. Um, so the first thing was, and I think this is for anybody who's about to start or set up a CRM charter, is you have to figure out a way to know your customers. It's spoken about so often, but I don't think there's any company that can say that I have 100% Actively, I know my customers. I know everything about their customers. That's just not possible. Sure. But that's where you have to start. Because if you don't do that well, then you can't take step two, step three. You can't even think about Then what's going to happen is eventually the entire experience of, hey, you know what? This is right for you. This is wrong for you. This is what I can offer you better. This might not be relevant for you. All that goes for a toss. So the first thing is to set up that one structured data where you can create that single unified view of the customer. And that's something that was my first charter. So if, if you've been to a Decathlon store uh, and if you've shopped at one of the stores, you would see the three smileys. You would see some customer data, mm. some customer data being captured at the pause for valid reasons, which was more around because it's a sport product. And uh, in case anything goes wrong during the manufacturing, we could do a recall and sure. avoid an injury to happen. But uh, to build that entire structure of connecting satisfaction to capturing customer data was my first project. So that okay. entire POS was my first project. So this is, I mean, across the stores, the POS would be central, the phone number entered here, it would yes. connect you to data elsewhere as well. And yes. that's the starting point of all things CRM. Yes. But structurally, this would only mean that people who have transacted are the ones that you'll be able to capture. All the yes. walk-ins will, sure. like most retail sure. businesses, still go sure. off Not record. Not that, in fact, Decathlon took it a notch up because I'm talking 2013 when there was no GDPR, there was no DPDP, the new India sure. one that has come through. But opt-in from day one was mandatory. Yeah, mandatory. Not, so mm. it's not even everybody who's bought. It's everybody who's bought and, and permissioned. proactively said, hey, you know what, I want to receive communication from you. Other ones who Decathlon used to reach out to. And, but the funny thing was Decathlon had an advantage primarily because it was first of its kind. Mm. So people were not hesitant in saying, hey, you know what, I want to receive information sure. from you. So more often than not, around 80-85% of our customers would opt in for okay. communication, which worked for the Decathlon. Pretty healthy. Well. Yeah. So in some sense, uh, this was still a very offline first kind of play. And at some point, a mobile app became relevant. And you uh, did mention about the behaviors or the problems that you wanted to solve from the mobile app were a little different compared to what normally one would look at. Right. Maybe talk about when that happened, what was the right uh, the reason for doing this and how does this play out? Right. So... Uh, Decathlon was a pure offline player from 2013 to 2016. Mid 2016 is when we picked up the project of launching e-commerce in India. And I think from 2016 till 2019, it was just the website that people were shopping from. Um, while apps were becoming the new big thing and everybody was launching an app, Decathlon initially was not in a favor of uh, launching app because like I said, it was very customer centric. So the problems that uh, we as a brand then wanted to solve was the problems which are actually pointed out by the customers and having not having an app was not a problem. Um, so we said, hey, you know what? Let's optimize the website even more, but let's solve the problems which exist otherwise. Mm -hmm. And one of the big problems was checkout uh, time in the store. Sure. And uh, if you've been to the store on weekends, you might it's end up waiting for 2020. Quite a bit, yeah. Too. So, so the idea was, uh, how can we solve that problem? And that's where the first app discussion came into picture, which was called the scan and pay, where the idea was that you can just scan a product, pick up a product, pay online and just walk out of the store. Okay. And I'm talking, this was done 2019. And the adoption was so high across the pilot stores that immediately after that, there was a new set of discussion. Hey, you know what? Can we build a full-fledged shopping app? And then it came into existence. So it was a very step. Quick little tactical question here. Most stores have that little security tag, which they need to get removed by somebody at the boss. Sure. In Decathlon, you don't have that. No, we don't have that. It's a conscious choice. Yeah, but there are RFA, RFID tokens now and tags. And hence, mm. if somebody is moving out without shopping or just walking out with the product, which has not been paid for, still it's now tag. gets to Decathlon. But then the, from an experience point of view, if somebody is scanned and paid, what is the reduction in the time that they'll get to get this stuff removed? Uh, uh, 
I think you save probably 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. On a week. This is a sweat faster to yeah, remove yeah. the bags. Just keep scanning, keep uh, adding to your cart and just pay and walk out. As soon as some, somebody still need to tag, take those tags out, which is what I'm curious. No, nobody. So there's no, those plastic tags which you see, mm-hmm. there's nothing like that at Decathlon. Okay, so you're saying that if I've scanned and paid, it'll automatically clear yes, uh, yes. from me the while, while at stores, yeah, while at stores, there'll be security guys still, you know, doing a random check to say, yeah. hey, you know, what people want to misuse it. Hmm. Um, but then uh, it's, it's kind of what IKEA lets you do as well yes, now. And I'm amazed video. that a lot of these retail fashion brands, which have the same issue in terms of the checkout queues being insane, it doesn't seem like very hard to do it, given that you've done it like four years ago now. Sure, sure. Yeah, it is. It, that's what I said. I mean, it just comes that your projects come out of the actual problems. That yeah, customer centricity. Fair enough. So now the app is in the picture for the last four years. And in some sense, the user engagement is in action now. What are the top two or three things that you're doing or, or you did there, which attracted the, I mean, the whole structured lifetime value approach? Interestingly, there was not a big push uh, to download the app. It just happened organically. Organically, sure. Yeah, people walk into the store. Um the best part was that people in the store, the people who work at Decathlon stores are so passionate about their jobs that they were equally keen to tell them, hey, you know what, you can walk out quicker if you download the app. So it's more the conversation in the store that kind of nudged people to download the app rather than us running performance campaigns to run the app. I'm not saying that there was no sure. performance campaigns run at all, but majority of downloads were purely organic and a lot of it pushed through the team members in the store. Mm. Uh, and it was not as part of their KPI. It's not that, hey, you need to get 10,000 downloads. It's the culture it's of customer sensitivity. Exactly. Play. It just it was just that, hey, you know what? You can walk out faster. Let me help you download it. Um, I've, I've, I've had incidents where I've given my hotspot to somebody to download it. So it just, and it was not just people in the store. Everybody in the company would uh, be Do doing that no matter what. Fair enough. But from a installed base, which you now have, which then became also e-commerce as a possible path, did that become a meaningful channel? Oh, yes, it did. When it, when you talk about digital-only revenue, it did. And in fact, today, it is it should be even bigger. I mean, I've been out of Decathlon the past two years. Unfortunately, before that, two years was hit by COVID. So uh, I, I, I don't really have directionally on what they did. But given the time I was at Decathlon, it was already a substantial uh, channel, platform, I would say. But very interesting approach for a company which would otherwise be in a slightly competitive space because it's not like you the, I mean, you obviously have a unique set of portfolio. But you will have people on the web which will compete perhaps for the same amount of attention, right? You mean, sure. if somebody wants a badminton racket, they probably have five places to shop from. Sure. But if you've got your app installs done organically and some amount of engagement is there, it suddenly makes your cat look very different. Right, right. And you know, I'm going to use that as a segue into our rest of the conversation, which sure. is about D2C, sure. men's fashion. Sure. The space which cats can be pretty crazy already. Cute. And let's talk about, you know, how your journey with dementia has been. What were the first things that you were chatted out with right. and how does it look now? Um. Dementia has been a very, very interesting journey, uh, primarily because um, day in, day out, I was with Decathlon for nine years. So day in, day out, I would be hearing about D2C, D2C, D2C. And I was like, what is this thing? Huh? I see people coming back home at 9.30 in the night and saying, you don't know what it is like to work for a D2C brand. I was like, okay, I need to experience this. So when I decided to move out of Decathlon, I was like, I need to get into a D2C brand. And Dementia was the first one that happened. Okay, and, um, and I was very happy to join that primarily because when you read about dementia, it's a success story. Uh, they have done things right, which is the reason why they are where they, they are. The way they are. So uh, I was quite excited, but I also had some clarity that if I'm going into a D2C brand, uh, coming from a company where I worked for nine years and the way of working is very, very different, I need to be doing something where I can contribute from day one. Sure. So I joined as a director of customer success. So my responsibility okay. was to build the entire retention module, build the entire loyalty piece. How do we get more revenue out of existing customers? How do we connect them more often with the brand, create Mm. that recall through retention and things like that. Then eventually, as anybody would do, I kind of spread out my wings and took up a few other responsibilities, which I had learned during the last two years at Decathlon, launching a startup within the ecosystem. Um, And that kind of added a lot of value to my profile as somebody at Dimensh, but also the fact that it also gave me a peek into how the business is being run. So my decisions were now even better given I have seen one side of Decathlon where they were very customer-centric. Now I've come to D2C where at times most D2C brands are brand-centric. 
um, and very heavier acquisition. But this brand had realized quite early that, you know what, we can't just keep acquiring, but we also need to get these people to buy back. And that's something which kind of put me in a very right place where I had the backing of the founders. I had the backing of my boss then to say, hey, you know what, no retention is very important for us. And we can't wait for four years, five years before we kind of kickstart this thing seriously. So I was very happy to join it. And uh, there was a transition. There's a big, big transition. I had to unlearn a lot of things from Decathlon. And I had to kind of uh, quickly find my, my way through on. Because D2C customers, unlike Decathlon customers, are not very loyal. Of course. And you have to build that loyalty. You have to fight for that loyalty because there's so many brands in the same space that even one wrong experience could lead to that customer leisure brand. So you have to be very, very careful. At the same time in which um, the scale at which you have to grow, the pace at which you have to grow, you will end up acquiring a diverse variety of customers and not all of whom will probably be resonating with the brand in the same way as uh, you would want them to. But let's zoom into the stage at which uh, you joined uh, the Mensch. What was the scale at that point? What was the growth rate at that point? How did the founders confirm that stance that, okay, we need to have somebody looking at this full-time at this level of position? Because right. a lot of brands like you just probably hinted at end up delaying this for a little later. So what was the mandate that drove them to this decision at this point and what was the scale and nature of play? See, I think just if you just look at the category itself, okay, men innerwear is an ignored space while jockey came in ages ago and kind of captured the market. But it's more like since you don't see it, it is not as important. Okay? Sure. And uh, that mindset had to be changed and that mindset uh, could have been changed by regular communication. It is very important. I'll come to why I'm talking about this is because sure. for any brand, frequency of buying becomes very important. Now, there are so many brands in that space that, that men generally are not loyal when it comes to being uh, buying from one particular brand. So, so they would like, hey, you know what? Today, there's a good deal here. So let's buy from here. Tomorrow, there's a good deal in another brand. Let's buy from it. And D2C brands are driven by discounts and yeah. offers and whatnot. Um, which kind of made it even more important that if you want to retain, you have to be in constant touch. You have to be uh, what I like to say, instead of using the word personalized, you have to be relevant. Hmm. Uh, you have to make sure that what they see, what they receive makes sense to them the moment they see it, the moment they receive it. And hence, uh, they realized, Dimensh realized very early that if we don't do this right now, we will eventually start bleeding because we'll keep acquiring money. And like you said, CACs are not cheap in D2C, especially in a space where there's so much competition right now. Sure. Um, they realized that if they really want to sustain and eventually go towards profitability much quicker, you have to be able to pay attention to retention. I will put a number to what scale was this? I would say when I joined around 30, 31% of the total revenue was coming existing customers okay if that's the number that yeah i was curious about the scale of the company but uh, at that time it was uh also near about 100 crore when i joined sure. i joined just two years ago so mm. um now it's more than of course crores, but yeah, substantially growth. yes so this is where most companies will end up having the challenge between managing growth while managing the retention side of things because when you start expanding beyond the core ICP that you thought was uh, going to repeat well, you know, in your world of decathlon, the sports enthusiast, you will end up attracting a whole lot of customers who are probably casual one-time trials. True. And the repeat rate might not look the same True. in some sense. So from an org design perspective, if you can help us understand what does the team now look like that you uh, work with, there is going to be people working on data, perhaps on technology stack, perhaps on content, perhaps on uh, liaising with the product side of things. What does that org look like? Right, right. So today, the way it is structured is I look at sales and marketing board. Now, we do everything in-house. So we've got performance marketer. We've got somebody dedicatedly looking at retention, both app and web. We've got somebody looking at SEO. We've got somebody looking at uh, analytics. Like There's a dedicated analytics team. Hmm. Um, then there is a dedicated creative team. And for me, to for retention to work, I think uh, you need three very important things. There's somebody who's looking at strategy and execution purely, but then that person needs a lot of support from the creative side of things and even more from the data side of things. Sure. So the way it works is data as an entity exists you know, on itself and they kind of functionally work with me 
Mm-hmm. So every time there's a requirement, every time we need to dive deeper into a cohort or the way it worked or how it performed, they are there to help us with it. Sure. And while um, the creative side of things align the brand team, mm. uh, but there is again a dedicated resource in the creative team, a designer who purely works on retention campaigns, because then that person also gets the time to improve, to look at optimize. the work and to optimize all the campaigns. And similarly, there is somebody at the copy side who actually uh, looks at how the copies are performing when it comes to SMSs, mm. WhatsApps, and mm. portions mm. of the world. Um, but then there is a process to it which kind of makes this work. Uh, and the process is the fact that there is a constant review. All these guys know how their campaigns perform. So a copy sure. guy would know how his copy worked. The design team would know how the design worked. And not just saying, this, is, this was good, this was bad, but absolute numbers. You might. So would this somewhere say that there's a, let's say a certain level of data orientation across the entire team on one level. And the kind of KPIs you're chasing with these guys will have the funnel KPIs on click rates and conversion rates on sure, one side, sure. but also the cohort impact on the, at a macro level that, okay, we're able to get these many people who are only one-time transactors to become a second-time transactor. Yes. So what is that segmentation framework you would apply and what kind of KPIs would then be driven through this lens? Right. Um, so the segmentation frameworks that we typically work on are probably three, four of big ones is what I could probably mm-hmm. cover. Um, RFM is a no-brainer. You directly run to it when there's a problem. You don't want to put too much brains to it. Martech tool today has yes, it so inbuilt. They would have it. Um, yeah. But then beyond that, we do a lot of uh, cross-selling and upselling. We've created a report called the Adjacency Report. The data team was kind enough to do it. So we typically know um, which products go well with what other set of products. Sure. What percentage of customer who buy X product eventually end up buying their second purchase as mm. a Y product. So we call it the adjacency report is because we're able to combine and be able to decide that this particular communication, if it's about trunks, should also have these three products along sure. with it. Um, so that's another level of um, segments. So that it's we kind create. of uh, data driven, but also touch very total in some sense. Yes, yes. And we do a lot of campaigns on browsing behaviors as well. Okay. Primarily because we know that you're sitting in a space where at a time men would be browsing two or three brands to buy the same product. Sure. So if you're not creating recall that, hey, you know what, you looked at this product or there's a slight offer on this product, Mm. you can avail this as the best price. So, you know, if it's not in your site, it's not in your mind type. So we keep that. We do a lot of campaigns around browsing. We've in fact set up um, a couple of flows around browsing campaigns, uh, uh, both on app and web. And on app, definitely it works much better um, than compared to web. So you decide to launch an app, which itself yeah. is a worth conversation worth having. But, you know, just to cover the part where we spoke about the segmentation framework, right. you mentioned RFM in some sense, and you talked about uh, the cross-sell upsell opportunities, basis maybe the category of what they started out with. Yes. And in our conversation before this, you mentioned something as a recruiting category. Sure. And uh, the performance partnering team also rolls up to you. Yes. The entire acquisition effort is also something you have a fair right. bit of depth of. While uh, I'm not an expert in that. Sure. But, uh, but yeah. It's a let's say orchestration that you're managing in some sense, you know, uh, you mentioned the whole concept of recruiter products, which are probably where people enter the brand relationship from, and then it goes deeper from there. And I wanted to use that as a lens on segmentations. You know, what are these products in your case? How do they uh, improve the conversion from the day zero? Is this like a dominant share of your acquisition spends? So help us understand that a little bit. Um, Yes, there are identified recruiter products and given uh, we are in the D2C space and so many competitive brands like we've spoken about earlier. Um, price becomes a very, very important criteria to choose. Mm-hmm. And I think today, uh, typically, as a customer, and I believe customers to look for what's in it for me. Uh, you know, it's not entirely uh, just features or just uh, this is made out of 100% cotton, blah, blah, blah. And that itself will push you to buy. It's more about what's in it. The benefits and features both together come in to decide whether you want sure. to buy it or not. And uh, price, like I said, is something which is non-compromised when it comes to Indian customers. So we've got certain range of products where we know that uh, if people have to enter this brand, they would want to try it. And that cannot be very high-value products. They are products which are more at entry level, but still gives you that feel of the brand, that this is what brand is about. It doesn't mean that it's going to be cheap quality because it's cheap. 
The quality sure. still is at a very high level, but the price might be slightly lesser. We also create offers around certain products to make it as a recruiter product. Yeah. So that, uh, say for example, because we were innerwear first brand, but we've kind of diversified into outerwear as well. There are certain products which are slightly priced higher in outerwear, I mean, compared to innerwear. And we still recruit people through outerwear products as sure. well. But then um, the right combination of offers, the right combination of, you know, things like lookbooks and things like this is how you can pair it with. Hmm. Uh, this is how it can go with your shorts. If you're talking about t-shirts or polos, these kind of things where we try to introduce the product from a use point of view uh, kind of also works with slightly higher price product. But for the recruiter product, we primarily focus on products which are priced slightly lower. You know, what's interesting is uh, when you look at the whole lens of uh, ROAS, and right. Marketing, either subject that you work with, and you're looking at reduced prices as an entry point of the platform, and you're in a competitive space. Right. So you're bound to find a way to, let's say, cross that upsell in now so that this whole CAC yes. gets reflected yes. well. Yes. How does it look for you today? And is there a, it's a choice framework? Because, you know, in different conversations, we've heard people being very obsessed with ROAS and to the point that they made a entry point bundle a higher price for it. Because they saw the conversion rate is not dipping that much if you increase the prices, so the ROAS gets that much better. Right. What's your lens in this? Um, we have the same lens. ROAS is very important for us as well. We do it channel-wise. We do it uh, campaign-wise. We decide. And even for retention, we mm -hmm. kind of go all the way to ROAS and what okay. it's Because while it's cheaper, but there is still a still cost associated cost. with it. Um, so every decision that we take on marketing, be it to optimize, be it to stop, be it to change, be it to start, is definitely driven by ROAS. There is there is a number that we put to our spends to revenue. And, and that's, that's a sacrosanct yes, number. Are yes, you able to reveal is, it? It is. Uh, <laughs> I would say not. That's all right. Uh, but yeah, we do our best to kind of be around it, if not hmm. below it. So that's why it has to, the game is ROAS driven no matter what. Fair enough. So in terms of the acquisition category, you're mindful of ROAS and now you need to make sure they're doing enough on the cross-sell upsell side of things. This is where a uh, recruited customer would end up getting a certain level of lifetime play in that yes. sense. And that's where the adjacency reports come into picture because mm. now that say if you've recruited you through trunk, the next product cannot be a 3000 rupee sweatshirt. The next product has to be something which is much more relevant to what you have bought before. Which is what the and data is reflecting yes, in the adjacency yes, reports. Yes. So the kind of data setup you're talking about, you're looking at campaign level ROAS, which is not entirely common. You also looked at retention outcome on ROAS. Is this coming from the fact that there's somebody in your org at the higher level who's suffering data obsessed to be asking these questions? Because I've not seen a lot of brands do this effectively. The thing is that the reason why Dimensh is doing the past leaders and the current leaders, um, everybody is data obsessed. The mm -hmm. fact that a young brand, and I've been in the company for two years, we had a de dedicated data team years ago. Sure. And a smart bunch of people. Mm. So the fact that we had a data team even two years ago, given that we are a five-year-old brand almost, um, clearly indicates that everybody in the company is data driven. The priority exists and the fact yes. that you have a sort of sacrosanct number on how the ROAS has to play may not be the most conservative, may not be the most aggressive, but the fact that makes it what your runway or your sustainability play in motion because a lot of people tend to get really careless with it, reckless with it rather in their early days and that ends not in a very, very good shape. True. So the fact that Dimension has been able to get to this point of the scale at which you are already says something about the success rate as a company. Sure. You know, there's probably what, less than 5% of the companies who make it this far in that category. Yes, yes. I mean, see, there are certain things that we've done well. And one of it is making sure that everything that we do is tracked. So Harsh, um, you know, there's this whole left brain driven approach of everything being number driven. And then there is this whole brand led approach where you want to build a certain persona, a certain personality, a certain aspirational value to your brand. Because... In some sense, if you become a commodity, you'll always keep competing on price with somebody else who's able to offer the same thing or lesser. How does this lens work for you in your consumer engagement and journeys? See, I think, uh, I would not say it's easy. There are arguments, there are discussions. Um, and, you know, uh, creative side is always very perception-based. Uh, I might like something, you might not like something. But what we do is, um, there is a thorough understanding of what we want to be as a brand. We know that our target audience is premium, premium. We back our product quality and we know, I mean, we had a 500 day range product as well. Um, so there are things that we've put in place to create that adoption for premium and mid-premium customer. We mm -hmm. just have to beat it enough number of times to realize that, hey, you know what, this brand we can trust. And then the way we communicate, the way we 
push these messages out to these people that trust gets built. But what in the process happens is that, like I was talking earlier, our creative team is not um, biased towards just because I like the design or just because I like the comms, uh, this is going to work. Hmm. The creative teams are also data-driven. They also are told about, you know what, this works, this doesn't work. Say we've got six banners on our homepage. Now we track every banner impression, every banner click to understand whether this kind of banner works, this kind of banner doesn't work. I have a very interesting example. We shot with Vikrant Masse as one of our, uh, call it brand ambassadors. Sure. We had a year-long deal with him. And we had some beautiful shots with him. And we started running WhatsApp campaigns using his shots. Okay. And they just tanked. It just didn't work. Okay. okay. The worst performing WhatsApp campaigns were with his images in it. And I'm not saying it's bad. There were performance campaigns we were running very good. Sure. But for some reason, we felt, and that was just me because it's running retention then, that it was, for our customers, it didn't matter who, are, who have already bought from us. It didn't mm. matter about who's representing the product. Okay. But the product itself had established itself so well that uh, when we started using flat lays in communication, more close-up shots of the product, those campaigns would work better. So it was more about how the product looks, how the product feels that had already settled down in their mind mm. that this is a good brand to operate with. And but it worked it better on the acquisition side nonetheless. But it worked better on the acquisition side. Mm. So so doesn't mean that just because Vikrant Masse is there, every communication should be Vikrant Masse. Of course. So we yeah. took a step back and we said, WhatsApp pay, Vikrant Masse might not work. So let's mm. not do it. Let's not just, let's go back to our core, which is our product and the quality of product that needs to be showcased in these kind of communications. Even on our email campaigns, we rarely used, we, I'm not saying we didn't use, sure, but when but we realized that, you know what, it's not really bringing that uplift, then there's no point. What mm. works is what we actually focus towards. So the maths decides, the creatives can experiment with what they want to experiment with, but the maths will decide what the scale up will look like. True. Fair. And you mentioned this whole aspect of uh, the discounting as a lens and the deal hunter as a customer segment, which is always going to be the whole quick pace to growth as an approach. And on the other side, you want to build a sustainable business as well because sure. you don't want to go uh, like cash out in some sense, right? Sure. So how do you balance these two out? Because in some sense, if you remove discount, and in my impression as a brand, you've taken that stance in some of these scenarios. How do you navigate in a very competitive scenario? Um, see, there's a thing and I will kind of talk a bit about Decathlon as well because Decathlon never gives discounts, okay? And still has a very solid base of repeat buyers just because they've been able to build and loyalty with good quality products sure. and back themselves with seamless shopping experience okay no matter wherever you go you will feel the same you'll be treated the same and hence that brand loyalty is very high hmm. I think when you decide to take a step back and cut down on discounts then you have to also take that part of things where you want to be a bit more customer centric sure and this is understood by the company as a whole. Hmm. We've kind of reduced our discount by almost 33, 35%. Okay. okay? Uh, um, but then we have also become more customer centric. We are also very keen about how the shopping experience is. We launched the app to make sure the buying experience is quicker. We are working on new projects like single checkout, single click checkout. Um, everything around from design to communication is keeping in mind that we are not a push brand, but we are more a pull brand. We create comps which kind of pushes you to, hey, you know what, let's go explore what it is. Mm. So there has to be that mindset change. You can't cut discounts and create bad experiences and hope the business will work. But in some sense, you're taking a bit of a short-term hit because given the way the Indian market is, it'll be hard to maintain the sales velocity if you're taking away discounts. We will take hit up to a certain extent. Obviously, sure. if we start giving 50% discounts, then we will sell more. But mm. the maths just does not add up then. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you will take longer time to be where we are right now. This is where uh, in the competitive ecosystem, people that are operating rationally would take that stance that, okay, we cannot discount beyond a certain level, even if it means a slight dent in the growth velocity in some sense. Sure. On the other side, uh, the guy who's aggressively discounting despite the kind of dent it's making to his CM3 sure. might not last. Sure, it, it will not. It will not. And but but here is the thing. I mean, um, if you are taking this decision consciously and you stick by it, that hey, you know what? This is the direction I'm going to follow. I'm ready to take the hit of whatever it comes to, but I'm prepared for it. You know, I'm going to ask you a slightly tr uh, tricky or hard question in that sense. 
wherever the quarter ends and the targets have to be met yeah. most people end up forgetting the playbook and going the hack path of you know let's just boost the numbers up because we need the next round of investment we need the quarterly numbers to add up and whatever so that's where some of these wealth also strategies tend to go for it us how do you manage this in your end see there are drastic decisions there are knee jerk decisions and there are thought of decisions okay? sure so it's not that one fine day we got up in the morning and we said let's cut the discounts it was a slow and steady process mm. we didn't go from an x discount to a y discount in day one day so it has happened over a period of time but like i said accordingly we've also adapted our way of working okay the way we think on creating offers the way we price our products um the way we showcase our products the products that we are launching i mean i can i can tell you a couple some sense is that all matching up and adding up to the kind of dent that would otherwise come from your yes. discount so removal? there are and not only that i mean i've been i've been um, we we've, we've taken a path with the founder and the cbo here that um, we will add a few value add initiatives over and above what a baseline could look like sure and we do our best to make those initiatives work hmm. and these are two things that both of them were aligned for i just when it trickles down to us we are also excited to kind of executed and uh, these are not initiatives which will put a dent in numbers here and there mm. it's not um, a simple thing could be say hey, you launching a successful loyalty program or running sure. a referral program or mm. there could be small little initiatives in fact if you look at the example that is going to give is we were pricing our sweatshirts in x amount say last year but then the production supply side they're also working to say can we launch the same quality sweatshirt at slightly lesser price mm. so then the discounting kind of goes out of the picture again Okay. so there are everybody in the company is aligned towards this goal it's not a knee jerk reaction that we have to become profitable and this and that and hence let's reduce discounts as the first go to uh, activity which in some sense talks about a very mature way of building a business rather than having a quick hack to grow to a certain level and potentially look at an exit scenario because it might or might not come it might take a longer time and you might need to survive or at least continue growing till then sure. even if it's a slow growth but it's a consistent growth yes yes that's the objective that we have we are not saying that this month to next month we will grow by 50% it's not we know what we can achieve with the numbers that we have but we've kind of benchmarked that this is what we definitely need to achieve and mm. for that everybody does their best in their own verticals so sure. a lot of um accountability that i try to build within the team people look at things on a daily basis people react to it uh, there's a lot of data points that will help you kind of be a bit proactive but it will not happen 100% of the time so sure. the only communication that i have with my team is when you get to know something that can be fixed go ahead and fix it okay sure so so yeah and it's kind of worked for us in the last 6 8 months so from that lens now you you know look at consumer persona then there will be people who are let's say the style seekers who are going to go for the looks that you're creating who don't necessarily keep comparing prices are you able to let's say pinpoint the trend seeker versus the style seeker kind of persona on the one side and the discount seeker on the other side is there uh, the level of maturity in your data systems yet or is that let's say an effort that you spend in time on to figure this out and days ago when the person comes in the first click he makes on is on something which tells you something about him sure. and that could help you uh, predict the rest of the behavior that he'll demonstrate sure uh like i said we we rely a lot on our browsing data and we mm. do take a lot of insights from it so you're right when you say that we are able to distinguish between who a deal seeker is who is a very loyal customer who doesn't care whether there is a discount or not um and just they buy the product because they like it mm. okay now the retention rates of our innerware is massive people who buy our innerware uh, i would say 80% of them come back and buy our innerware again okay, okay. that's quite healthy yeah and uh, it's it's there are relevant pushes in place and everything but i'm saying there is still um that fact that you know the innerware is good and we know that hence mm -hmm. it also becomes one of our recruiter products sure but we are able to clearly differentiate that uh, uh when a person buys this product um which so we have say innerware at xyz price and we know somebody whose first purchase is the most expensive one mm. we can push him certain products which are slightly higher value given that they like our first product we are very confident about are in aware so hmm. the next campaigns will follow up with slightly more if i could call where 
more like an investment, you know, okay, you're spending 3,000 rupees to buy a sweatshirt. You can do that at Zara and H&M as well. Sure. Why should you buy from Dimension? Because mm-hmm. we have given you that confidence that our inner wear is good. So mm-hmm. trust us that even outerwear will be well researched and thought of and will be a good quality product. So because of these differentiations that we have been able to make on data, either it be from buying behavior, browsing behavior, or generally another practice that we do, which I should have mentioned before is uh, we kind of talk to customers for insights. Okay. Okay. And that's a practice that we do as part of our customer centricity piece. In fact, the the first time in store experience with Decathlon taught you to do this today. Yes. In fact, not just me, but our founders also do talk to our Hmm. customers. Um, In fact, when we wanted to uh, make some changes in the website, we did an entire project with my previous leaders where, uh, you know, we took customers on call, took them through an entire buying experience on the website and identified what pain points they experienced to the buying side and then eventually tried to change it and improve it. So a lot of these things as well, we... Really? Do you have like an in-house tech team to maintain your website? Because most companies end up being on Shopify, which is somewhat plug and play. We don't... Don't end up tinkering too much. We don't have an in-house tech team, but we have product heads, we have... Uh, business analyst who who do this. Hmm. We as a team, the sales and marketing team, kind of feed them these inputs. Hmm. Um, we have regular discussions with uh, them on prioritizing which might be more important. You know, some low hanging fruits or build that on a time and front and cost kind of graph and see which one is the most important to pick. So a lot of these kind of activities we can do, and we've got data systems in place to be able to kind of validate it or quantify it that this is why hmm. we should be. So in some sense, uh, the number of touch points they seem to have across the org on the product side and the web experience side of things. And sometimes you also spoke about the category and catalog expansion side of things and to what kind of product should be brought in and what kind of crosses and sales has to happen effectively. It seems uh, the whole retention topic is not a marketing problem. It seems to be the entire org's attention span addressed to it. Sure, sure. And we take pride in the numbers that we have for retention. And it's not just, just my team or just me who's kind of led this. Everybody is involved. Everybody looks, see, acquisition has always been very sexy, okay? Uh, I, I talk to young aspiring marketers at times and everybody wants to go into acquisition. Nobody really talks about attention because that's Low where money. the money is, yes. Yeah. Um, but then I've also spoken to a few people who are just mad about attention and they just want everything and anything around. But the numbers are still uh, very less. Fortunately, like I said, why I enjoyed joining Dementors right from day one. Uh, my previous boss, the founders, everybody's aligned that attention is a problem for the entire company and not just uh, for one person. So every initiative that I wanted to take has been listened to, thought of carefully and not always about uh, if we do it today, will we get the return tomorrow? They also know that it's a long-term game. So, sure. so you can't do it just today and expect everything will fall in place. So we've constantly been able to get better, improve, add things. You know, in some sense, with this entire obsession with ROAS, data centricity, uh, customer centricity, retention mindset, ends up being a bit of a differentiated play compared to whatever else is happening in the industry. Is I that what you think so. also? I would say so. Um, and I go to seminars or conferences and I meet people. And I think when you start talking about retention, there's a lot of interest. But otherwise, it's a lost topic. Okay, Which is kind of what we struggle with all the time, yeah, right? Because, because there's so much to talk about on acquisition. That it always, see, anyways, retention comes after acquisition is what the understanding is. For me, it's slightly different. For me, retention starts from the day the customer has had the first interaction with your brand, be it a store, be it a website. But a lot of places, it's still thought that let's first acquire, then we'll think about retention. Get to a certain scale before we'll have to worry about retention. Exactly, exactly. And if you do a good job and brand enough, people will come back. If your product is good enough, it will take care of itself. Yes, yes. And I know, but with D2C brands, products are never good on day one. That's my perception. I have ordered from multiple D2C brands, but it's not that products have been good uh, from all those. Is that a good thing? I mean, something they should solve for because the first product experience is probably the last time somebody will give them a chance. But I'm sure that there's enough research done for them to get into and launch a business. I hope so. Yeah. So I, I also take that, but it's not that every D2C brand that I've ordered from has given me a wow experience. Yeah, but the likes of us as consumers, when we order from B2C brands, about 85% of us don't even repeat the second time. True. Right. True. That's a reality for majority of D2C True. brands, which is where when you talk about your innerware having an 80% repeat rate, yeah. that's like far you know, beyond the charts for a lot of people. Sure. And what I would say from that lens is most companies don't think it through as to what the repeat rate would look like when they start out with product. 
because uh, the whole lens of the intervals at which people will order this category, if this is going to be a six-month affair before the chance to order again would come in, if you don't have enough in your catalog to reorder with, it gets very hard for somebody to come back to your brand and order again. True. In that True. sense, right? True. So from your lens, uh, given the nature of the category, and this is, what is your impression of the average interval of purchase in your kind of play? See, uh, this category is a weird one. And we all know that. Um, the most ignored category, I would say. Um, but today, a two to three times a buying frequency, I would consider a good one in this category. You know, yeah. in a way, space. In no, a, in the in what time frame? One year time frame. Thrice in a year is something you would consider a good situation. one. Yeah, especially when I especially talk about inaware, pure inaware, pure mm -hmm. inaware. But when your category has outerwear, innerwear, this three could become four or five. Sure. Depending its price, right? You have been able to create that quantity because there are so many. See, men outerwear is also a very limited category. I mean, uh, there are five things that men can push sure. as a top wear. Yeah. Okay. So there are so many brands doing that. So you also have to stand in terms of. In quality. some ways, boils down to the share of that. You know, a, a guy would purchase X number of things in a year. As a brand, you want to have that percentage so, of that overall sure. X. And if you're able to have a dominant part of that X because that guy has had a good experience he will likely be a little lazy to switch. I would sure. imagine compared to uh, women, men tend to be a little lazier to switch. Is that yes. an observation? Actually, I feel, especially in the innerwear category, men switch very quickly. Really? In are there that many brand options to begin with? There are because, uh, see, like I said, if it is not seen, it's not important. Okay. Now, if you're getting a similar underwear at 100 rupees cheaper price from another D2C brand, there's nothing stopping you because... But from a the product experience perspective, it's... Because like commodity, is it? Yeah, I have taken it. I'll experience it. If it's good, brilliant. If it's not good, I'm going to move on to another brand or mm. go back to my original brand. Sure. You always keep experimenting with brands, okay? Okay. And I also feel that in innerwear category, you know, men also graduate from one brand to mm. another. Because there was a time when uh, people will start maybe putting on VIPs and Rupas and they captured the market brilliantly. Then they would have, then Jockey came in and then Jockey became slightly more premium than them. So people graduated to Jockey. Then from jockey, when you your stature kind of develops, you start earning a bit more. You move on to another bigger brand. So say Levi's, Jack and Jones and whatnot comes into picture. Sure. Then again, you grow in stature. You go to CKs of the world. CKs and Tommy's. Yeah, it just goes on. That's yeah. the way it is. Now in this space between the, the CKs of the world and between say the Rupas, the VIPs of the world, there are too many brands. Really? Okay. And all of them playing, I mean, they're all playing on price. Okay. And Typically, I think when you look at the, the what the product is made out of, uh, more or less, it will be 80-90% the same. Can you say something about the whole same beauty industry, right? I mean, a lot of these products ultimately have the same underlying ingredients, so it becomes hard to differentiate after the yes. point. And then it becomes an execution play that if you're able to do a good job at those 10 things that make a difference to customer experience, the product will be a part of the story, not the only story. Exactly. This is what I was trying to tell that mm. You have on one side an execution as a marketer, but you also have on one side um, execution as a brand where you care about your customers. And at the end of the day, that also is equally important, which is what I was saying that retention starts from the day the customer first interacts with you. It's very interesting because from that same lens that uh, Plix operates, another brand that I had in this conversation, uh, apple cider vinegar, uh, they launched the first fizzy tablets that you would drop in a glass right. of water and drink right. ACV. So ACV was supposed to be an upcoming, sure. uh, let's say, trend. I won't call yeah. it a fad because it's Weight sustained. Loss Weight loss trend, they have yeah. to do 10 other things with it. But uh, his entire premise was the fact that there are 40 more people who have launched ACV as a mm -hmm. product in the same category because it's a commodity, everybody can make it. But nobody can replicate the content engine is built in order to uh, supplement the entire customer right. experience and journey Top. in yeah. some sense, right? And from your lens, which is what I'm wondering as to, you know, what are the key differentiating factors? On one side, there's data obsession, the ROAS obsession, the quality control has taken you at a certain level, but will not cross over beyond that because everybody will end up getting to the same point in some fashion. So from a execution-oriented competitive advantage to a lens where you're operating on a non-discounted kind of play or less discounted kind of play, making it a more enduring kind of business. Yes. Right? So that's largely where uh, your sustainability will come from. True. So, uh, See, what will happen eventually uh, with time, we, know, we will get to know what works, what doesn't work. So we would have established a baseline that at this discount, at this pricing, at this kind of execution, we will definitely hit this baseline. And then there will be more new age innovations. Everybody talks about AI right now, personalization right now, quick checkouts, blah, sure. blah, blah. All these will just keep on increasing that value because 
the one who's, see, imagine if you have a very good product, you've got very good experience, you're communicating very well and you're not always too pushy, not bombarding too much and you know what you're communicating, like I said, benefits versus features, what is more important for you. When all of these starts falling in line, then eventually you will create a sustainable business. And that's what we're trying to do right now. We're making sure that there is certain process to everything we do. There's a certain way we look at each of these verticals. All of it is data back. All of it is thorough with execution. This is how we want to execute it. We are very clear. And these are things that are helping us fight that reduction in discount or say reduction. Yeah, which is what makes me then wonder the kind of space you're in has venture money available, has venture money deployed across perhaps your brand as well as some of the competitive brands. In one sense, that applies a lot of pressure to the growth velocity that you're driving. How are you able to balance this whole sensible, sustainable approach with the necessary mandate on growth? Uh, While in a competitive situation, I think, right? I think, see, till the time you're growing, it's not a problem. So we are growing. So what? So despite all of this discipline, we're able to maintain a certain growth. Yes, we are able to maintain a certain growth. And that's important. So it's not that we don't get worried. I mean, there will be days when we'll do bad business. Okay. And given um, D2C world, every day is important. Sure. A couple of bad days could just change the way the numbers look. Yeah, for the whole quarter. So that's what I was telling that if we are reactive enough, if we are quick enough to react and adapt and make sure that you don't have three bad days together, you're able to sustain. And Mm -hmm. what? building processes does is you immediately know where to go and look at. How to fix. Yeah. You know, if this has gone wrong, these are the five things could have gone wrong. So you immediately go and look at those five things and you try to fix and find out which of these five things are broken or are not working as expected. Do we need to tweak? Do we need to change? Do we need to optimize? All of these things happen at a very quick pace. And that is what processes Makes people come home at 9.30 p.m. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's something you can't avoid. That's life in the early days of a brand. But it's still a good uh, growth space in some sense because if you look get to 100 crores in five years in a largely online kind of play. Now I hear you doing the whole offline bit which is still early days to talk about yes. in my impression. But very interesting story, Harsh. Thank you so much for doing this. I think this should become a sort of template to continue growing but somewhat sensibly while containing your retention metrics, while containing your ROAS, while containing your crowd quality uh, metrics to actually have a fairly large number of DTC brands which are doing well in India. On that note, thank you so much for joining us, Harsh, today. Thank you so much. So the story of Harsh is a story of two brands. The amount of time he spent with Decathlon has really ingrained in him a very customer-centric marketer approach. He's literally spent time on the shop floor interacting with families and shoppers to understand what they've come for and how they would appreciate the experience. It's also fascinating how his experience has translated into the retention-first and customer-centric marketer for Dementia which is actually doing a pretty good job in terms of maintaining a sustained growth path despite a very competitive kind of market and who's not, let's say, giving in to the temptation of knee-jerk reactions of discounts. They have a very ambitious growth path forward and we wish the team all the best.